Good afternoon and welcome to our audience here in the studio and to our viewers online around the globe. I'm Eric Anderson. I'm the director of Voices in Leadership. This series focuses on lessons of effective leadership to create positive change in public health. We're broadcasting from the Leadership Studio, where the programs and related content have received over 4 million views to date and counting. Today, we host a discussion entitled Lessons in Leadership, a conversation with Juan Manuel Santos. In June 2010, Juan Manuel Santos was elected as president of the Republic of Colombia. Just days after he took office, he publicly announced that his government was working on a peace process with the FARC. He was re-elected in 2014 with a government plan based on three pillars, peace, equity, and education. The Norwegian Nobel Committee awarded him the Nobel Peace Prize in 2016 for his resolute efforts to bring the armed conflict to an end. The committee added that the distinction, quote, is a tribute to the Colombian people who, despite great hardships and abuses, have not given up hope of a just peace. Prior to serving as president, Santos was Colombia's first foreign trade minister. He also served as finance minister and national defense minister. In 2018, Santos launched the Compass Foundation, which will channel the funds from his Nobel Peace Prize to aid in the reparations process of the victims of the Colombian armed conflict. Currently, President Santos is serving as an Angelopoulos Fellow here at Harvard University. Before I turn this discussion over to our moderator, Professor Marcia Castro, please join me in welcoming President Juan Manuel Santos to the Voices in Leadership series at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone, and good afternoon, President Santos. It's a privilege and an honor for me to be interviewing you today. Um, I was born and raised in Latin America, and I'm a big fan of your leadership in Colombia, and it's, it's a pleasure to have you here joining us today. So this is the Leadership Studio, and I want to jump immediately in asking you to share with us your journey in leadership, from journalist, minister three times, president for two terms, how did that all happen? <laughs> I'm sure it was easy. Well, um, this journey actually started with a lesson that I received when I uh, joined the Navy. And uh, the officer who was in charge of the recruits gave me a sailboat and said, go and learn how to sail. And I had big trouble learning how to sail. And then he said, come here and I'll show you. <coughs> in order to sail, and this is a lesson for you uh, as a, now a cadet, but also for you in life. Uh, you need to know where you want to go. And in sailing, when you have a port of destination, you use the winds in your favor, even if they are against you. And that lesson was extremely important for me because I always uh, tried to identify a port of destination. And I had a conversation many years later with Nelson Mandela mm -hmm. in South Africa. I went there to give him the chair of the United Nations Conference for Trade and Development. And we had a, a meeting program for 15 minutes. Uh, but that morning, I turned on the television and I saw a surreal uh, life program. The victims of the war in uh, South Africa and their perpetrators, real life, were getting together. Some of them embraced each other, 
others shouted at each other. And I asked Mandela that afternoon, uh, why, why was he doing this? And he explained to me the process of healing after war and a conversation that was uh, supposed to last 15 minutes lasted five hours. Mm. And at the end, he said, you need peace in your country if your country wants to have any progress. And so I sort of found my port of destination, trying to seek peace for, for Colombia. And since then, I started working uh, to create the conditions, studying the different uh, peace processes around the world, the peace process that we had tried, my predecessors, and failed. Why is it that they failed? What lessons could I uh, extract from uh, the process in Northern Ireland, the process in South Africa, or in Salvador, or in Sri Lanka? Uh, and uh, what are the conditions necessary for a successful peace process to end a war that was, has lasted more than 50 years? Right. Um, and that's how, uh, well, I the different uh, experiences that I had as Minister of Trade uh, taught me things. Uh, uh, for example, I had to change the culture of the country because I was, um, I was in charge of opening the economy. That was back in the 90s when we had very closed economies and you had to make a big effort to change the way people th thought, especially the businessmen who were accustomed to protection or afterwards, when I was Minister of Finance, I had to uh, manage the economy in the worst economic recession that we have had in the last 80 years. That was also a tremendous experience in order to try to explain people why things had to be done that were unpopular. And there I, I learned the lesson of it's always better to do what is correct, even if it's unpopular. And in the Ministry of Defense, um, I learned that the type of leadership making war is very different mm -hmm. than the type of leadership making peace. When, and I had the responsibility of making war. Um, you, the leadership is relatively easy. It's a leadership, uh, a vert vertical leadership. Uh, you rally the forces around you. We are the good guys. The others are the bad guys, and uh, we go in after the, ba the bad guys, and that's relatively easy. You give orders. Making peace is a very different type of leadership, more horizontal. Instead of giving orders, you have to persuade. To persuade a mother whose daughter had been raped and killed to forgive the perpetrators or to accept leniency for these perpetrators. That is much more difficult. So uh, it was an accumulation of experiences that uh, taught me things that I used to uh, uh, in the peace process, which people in Colombia thought uh, it was impossible that to, after 50 years, peace with the uh, uh, largest and uh, oldest guerrilla movement in Colombia would be impossible. Well, fortunately, it was possible. So that's very interesting. So you've, you have a port of destination, you know exactly where you want to go, but the different steps that you, you took until you became a president expose you to very tough decisions, and you mentioned that. But yet you were elected. So 
tell us a little bit. You're making those tough decisions, and you're probably making some people unhappy, but the population is with you. So you probably have some special skills in communicating <laughs> those tough decisions that people go to the polls and vote for you. So tell us what's the secret. Well, it's a very special case because um, I was elected uh, because I was very successful making war. I was the most popular public figure in Colombia. My polls were above 90 percent. Mm -hmm. And I was elected with the highest margin ever in the history of the Colombian elections. But when I decided to make peace, things turned around. They warned me, I, and I was warned, and I knew that uh, people were going, to say, were going to try to say, or my uh, opposers will say, you're a traitor. You were elected because you are good, you're a good hawk, and now you become a dove. And why is that? But unfortunately, or fortunately, you have to sometimes uh, change your strategies in order to reach the port of destination. Uh, people thought that because I was effective making war, I should continue making war and uh, kill every single guerrilla that was left. That was impossible. Uh, that would take 20 or 30 more years. And if I wanted to end the war, in today's world, what we call asymmetrical wars all end in a negotiating table. What I needed is to weaken the FARC enough for them to go to the negotiating table in good faith, something that had not happened ever before. Mm -hmm. uh, but that was very difficult to explain to the Colombian people. So I'm one of the few leaders that was, in a way, elected by, would you would say, the, the right in the first election and elected by the left in the second election. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was elected as a hawk in the first election and as a dove in the second election. And that is not easy, uh, because uh, the contradictions, uh, when, you, when you have to explain too much, you're in trouble. And uh, I had to explain a lot of why I did it, and why I was negotiating, and I, why I was sitting with my former enemies, which I then tra uh, transformed into my adversaries. This was a very, very uh, important lesson that a general gave me when I was appointed Minister of Defense. He said, you're going to lead uh, uh, the country in the war against the FARC, but I know that you want peace. And uh, so treat the, uh, the FARC not as your enemies, because you destroy your enemies. Treat them as your adversaries. You beat your adversaries, but you are going to have to live with them for the rest of your life. So they're human beings and humanize the war. That was a very important lesson because that's what I did. I told, I told uh, my soldiers when I was Minister of Defense, um, instead of we had a terrible, terrible uh, method of uh, measuring the effectiveness of the officers, which was the body count, the one that the US used in Vietnam, was a terrible way to wage war. And so I changed that. And I told the uh, soldiers, I'm going to start measuring by the amount of people from the FARC that give up their arms and go back to their families. Mm -hmm. And we started doing uh, advertising campaigns, which even won many 
international prices like putting in in the river light bulbs, uh, colored light bulbs with messages from the mothers and fathers of the guerrillas to their sons to come back. And that had a tremendous effect. And uh, the soldiers were proud uh, then of not showing bodies, but showing I have these people who are going back to their families. So we managed to humanize the war, and that gave the, our army much more legitimacy because they had respect from the communities, mm -hmm. uh, uh, protecting the human rights of, of, of the people. And so that changed quite a bit the, the way uh, the war was waged. And when we came to have the peace negotiations, the army, for the first time, became an ally in the negotiations. And that was very important. That was crucial for the success of the negotiations. Did that also change how people that thought you changed sides, did they became your supporters well, then? For, for example, the victims. Mm -hmm. In today's world, and this is the first peace process that is negotiated under the umbrella of something called the Rome Statute. This is an international treaty uh, that uh, gave, uh, gave life, for example, to the International Criminal Court. Mm -hmm. and to something called transitional justice. It's a different type of justice that is applied precisely to facilitate peace processes. Well, I thought that the victims were going to be the most uh, uh, radical in opposing any kind of leniency for the perpetrators because they were the victims. But I was very wrong, and I, they gave me a lesson in life. Uh, they were the most generous. And when I asked him, but why are you so generous? And he said, they, they, I don't want other people to suffer what I suffered. And that was a very, very important aspect. So the victims became my uh, best allies mm -hmm. when I thought that they were going to be my best uh, adversaries, political adversaries in the peace process. So you, you had a destination, a port of destination, but you didn't quite know how those things were going to unfold, no, no. apparently. You always, you always have to take risks. Right. You always have to um, sort of break ice. In a, mm -hmm. there, is a, there is a famous uh, a, a songwriter and a singer, Juan Manuel Serrat, which has a phrase in Spanish, se hace camino al andar. You, 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 you sort of design your own path where right. you, uh, you, you go forward. Right. And that's many times what you have to do mm -hmm. in complex processes like a peace process in Colombia after 50 years of war. Yeah. So this entire peace process that gave you an, a Nobel Prize uh, to recognize it is, is just one of the things you've done. So you opened the economy. Um, you made access to health a constitutional right. Mm -hmm. Brazil did it first, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, the list is long. So personally, to you, what's the most important legacy of your leadership that you, you gave to Colombia, or to the region for that matter? Well, besides the peace, uh, we made efforts uh, to put education on mm -hmm. top of our priorities. For the first time, in economic history, education was the number one in our budget. The way a government expresses its priorities is through the budget. Mm -hmm. And so for the last five years, education has been number one, way above uh, 
defense, security, and the rest of, of the sectors in the budget, um, because I think this is the most important uh, investment that any country can make for to have a better future. It's not very profitable in the short run from the political uh, point of view, because you cannot inaugurate uh, what you're doing in education, like you, you can inaugurate a road or a bridge, but it's the most important investment. Mm -hmm. That, on the one hand. I think another thing that I did, was, which was quite innovative, I had a teacher at Harvard and at the London School of Economics. Uh, his name is Amartya Sen. He was uh, economic mm -hmm. uh, 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 laureate also, the yep. peace laureate. And I called him when I got elected. And uh, he was in Oxford, and, he, and I said, Professor Sen, I want to apply uh, the way you approach the fight against poverty, which was quite different from the traditional approach that the World Bank and the IMF and our countries, uh, Latin America and Africa, had, had followed. And he said, oh, how interesting. Could you come? And so I took the precision plane and flew to Oxford. <laughs> and we set up sort of a program and, uh, to apply what he calls, and it's called today, a multi-dimensional index to fight poverty, which is instead of measuring poverty by, by how much you earn, you measure poverty of how, wh what basic needs do you have satisfied or not? Mm -hmm. And you concentrate in those needs that you do not have satisfied, family per family. And Colombia can be proud of being the country in Latin America that has reduced poverty in relative terms more and extreme poverty and inequality more than other countries in Latin America because of the, the application of this new methodology. And why was it so effective? because it gave the government, it gave me uh, a much clearer um, um, situation where I could invest, where it, it told me where uh, should I invest the social expenditure that would have a highest impact on fighting poverty. Mm -hmm. So for example, if um, what I needed to graduate each family from poverty was uh, housing. Then in that sector, I invested in housing. But maybe it's health, uh, access to the education system. In that sector, I invested in that. So you had a way of investing your public money uh, with a much more uh, high return in social terms. Very interesting. So you launched a foundation, Compass. Um, and the three pillars of the foundation are uh, fight, fighting poverty, yes. uh, peace, yes. but climate change. Yes. So I guess there are two questions here. You didn't put education as one of the pillars of the foundation. No. Uh, so let, let's address that first. Let's leave the climate. I'll, I'll ask in a minute. So what made you choose those three pillars and not bring education, which was one of the main things you also did during your presidency? Well. Because I think education is transversal, mm -hmm. and part of the of the work that it, the the foundation is doing right now is educating leaders, uh, grassroots leaders, mm -hmm. but educating them to be much better leaders, to fight poverty in their communities, and 
to reconcile with the environment. Mm -hmm. This is why did I choose the environment? Well, when I became president, uh, I had to confront the worst Nina phenomenon ever. We, I had to manage the country uh, uh, that was flooded mm -hmm. for two, more than two and a half years. More than three and a half million people were displaced. We are a very vulnerable country in terms of the effect of climate change. In my tenure, I had to manage the worst Nina and the worst Nino phenomenon, right, which I was, was completely the contrary. Yeah. Uh, no rain for many, many months. And, and so, and we are a very rich country, like your country, Brazil, in terms of biodiversity. Mm -hmm. we, we are proud and say we are the richest country in terms of the concentration of biodiversity uh, in the world. Um, and uh, we had to protect that. And so we, we also had a, a, a president that uh, did not believe in climate change. So we reconstructed, we recreated the environmental ministry mm -hmm. and also set very ambitious objectives of uh, protecting areas uh, from mining or agriculture and protecting not only areas but uh, wetlands and marine uh, fauna and flora. And uh, I received a country with a roughly 12 million hectares protected and I gave to my uh, successor a country with 43 million hectares protected. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think we have to do a lot more. Mm -hmm. uh, still, you have deforestation in the Amazon, which is causing terrible problems. And so I thought that uh, a work on this area that I truly believe it's one of the big challenges of the world. Um, if, you, if you ask me what I think is going to be the worst problem for the world in the future. Uh, maybe nuclear, uh, uh, a nuclear war, which I hope will never happen, but climate change, would, which is already happening. Mm -hmm. There, we have to do a much bigger effort. Yeah, that's music to my ears and to everybody's, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but, so now that you're leading the foundation, how do you navigate with all those people that deny that it's an issue? And you don't have to go far. Some of your neighbors, well, trust me, that's not getting to yes. that. Mm -hmm. they, don't, they don't think it's an issue. They don't think we have enough evidence to say that climate change is an issue. Now you're leading the foundation. I'm sure you also want to leave a legacy with this foundation, just like you did with your government. How do you navigate all those people? Well, as I mentioned before, um, it is very uh, much more effective when you create a policy from from the bottom upwards than mm -hmm. from the top downwards. Mm -hmm. And so you you have to do a, a, a very uh, sort of long-term effort uh, in the grassroots to teach the leaders in the communities that are in, in the frontier between the <coughs> Amazon jungle and what has been deforestated, how bad that is and not to allow it. To teach the people how the indigenous communities play an important, a crucial role to protect the environment. They are the ones, the better uh, prepared because of their history and because they know the value of water, the value of 
clean air, the value of Mother Nature. Mm -hmm. uh, and so give them a higher, a, a much more important role in the decision making of these type of uh, policies. Uh, and so it's, it's a, a long-term complex uh, uh, effort, but it's necessary, other, otherwise we, we will all die. <laughs> that, that's, it's as simple as that. Mm -hmm. And is COMPAS going to be focused in Colombia, or do you expect to also have some insertion in the, in the region? Well, we, we're just starting, mm -hmm. um, and what I have imagined is like a, a modular uh, work uh, step by step, uh, we're starting in Colombia. If, for example, in the fight against poverty, the, ap the application of this multi-dimensional index, uh, this is very easily transferable to other countries. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have uh, advised many, many leaders, look, try it. You, it's very, very simple and you're going to uh, see the benefits very fast. And they're already Colombia was the first country uh, with Bhutan. Do you remember uh, the gross national happiness? Yes, they well, are the happiest country in the world. Uh, uh, well, he, he was in a way inspired by Amartya Sen also. And mm -hmm. I met uh, the Prime Minister of Bhutan who started that just uh, uh, some weeks ago. Um, but now there's more than 60 countries, 60 countries in the world that are interested or starting to apply. Mm -hmm. So we would like to help those countries that how to do it because mm -hmm. it also has a logistical internal good governance uh, aspect uh, of of the policy to work mm -hmm. well we're going to be following what compass does mm -hmm. for sure and see how we can model some of that so um we're almost done and i'm i really my, my last question to you is i want you to share some inspiration with our students because they are starting their own path to leadership. So I'd like you to share um, what do you consider your top leadership strategies that can serve as an inspiration for them? Well, it's very important uh, to be able to uh, understand uh, the concerns of the people you lead. Uh, their, how they feel, their problems, um, if they're hurt, uh, share th that sentiment, and that is called empathy. Mm -hmm. And uh, you need to develop empathy no matter what type of people you're going to lead. If it's a country, for the citizens. If it's the army, the soldiers. If it's a, an industry, the workers. Mm -hmm. But to lead, uh, you have to be able to internalize the concerns of the people you lead. So empathy is very important. You need to have what uh, very many famous leaders uh, describe as a mother of virtues. Courage. Courage to take decisions. Courage to uh, do what is correct and not what is popular. This is very important. Mm -hmm. uh, leaders who follow uh, public opinion usually are not good leaders. Leaders who lead public opinion, who make uh, decisions that at the beginning are not understood but mm -hmm. are the correct decisions, those are the leaders that can make a difference. And mm -hmm. so 
don't be afraid to be unpopular or to swim against the current. If you think you are correct, you will uh, probably reach your objective. I will share with you an anecdote very quickly. Uh, I went to, on a state visit to Austria. Austria has a very young leader. Uh, I arrived there and he uh, welcomed me in this marvelous palace in Vienna. And he said, uh, I have just been elected. I'm very young. What advice will you give me? And I was seeing this marvelous president, a Colombian president giving advice to a <laughs> prime minister of Austria. No, no, I have no advice. But then I said to him afterwards, maybe I have some advice. Sleep well. And he said, what do you mean, sleep well? Yes, go to, to, to your bed every night uh, thinking that you did what you thought was correct. And then if you, if you do that, you can sleep well. If you go to bed thinking that you did something that might be popular, but you didn't think is correct, you're not going to sleep well. All right, so know where you're going, be a good listener, have the courage to do the right thing and sleep well. Right. <laughs> and value education, right? All right. All right, President Santos, I am delighted and grateful you could be here with us today, um, sharing your vision on leadership, but particularly inspiring all of us. I can only hope that some leaders in Latin America could get inspired by you. We don't have to name them, but um, thank you so very much, President thank Santos, much. and thank you both. Thank you very much.